Hey, Jamie, I've got a question for you. What do you want, Tom? Who's on the podcast this coming Friday? Oh, is it someone big? Boy. Is uh, it a big one? Shall I bother listening this week? Yeah. If I was going to say uh, take. And I would say off no, your trousers. No, no. Take. Me out. No, take. Paddy McGuinness. No, take. Take on me. Take that. Wow. Have a little patience. But hang on, presumably you've only, you haven't got all three of them, have you? Presumably you've just got one of them. Buddy, we have all three of them on the podcast. They've released a new album. It's coming out. They're going on tour. They talk about the ups, the downs, the lefts, the rights, on everything that happened in Take the That. The ins, the outs. And they reveal it all this Friday. Exclusively. On Private Parts. That's a big one. I'm going to listen to that. 
How do you respond to kind of like, obviously, so there's a suggestion more people are using YouTube down there before online has been used more before. Like, how do you think folks respond to that kind of, how, do, how can TV react to that? Well, it, it depends on what's being said um, and the, the manner in which it's being said. So, um, absolutely, uh, behaviour is changing and um, we're seeing uh, audiences watch content in different ways on different devices, on different platforms. And um, I think, you know, there's, there's a quite a, you know, a wide recognition that AV is, you know, an incredibly powerful form for advertising. So as a result, a lot of people want, uh, want a yeah. piece of pie, they want to get involved in AV advertising. And so we've got Facebook, we've got YouTube, um, um, who are you know, massively ramping up their, uh, especially Facebook, their video AV uh, propositions to the market. And they're, you know, they're going out uh, aggressively, talking to agencies, talking to advertisers, and looking to increase their spend. Um, and do you know what? We totally agree that there should be increasing spend in these areas. They're either really exciting opportunities for, for advertisers, um, and we should be learning how they work and how they work effectively. Uh, the time when we get frustrated is when um, uh, the players come out and they uh, they position themselves against TV or they write articles in a way that's about undermining TV or yeah. they're suggesting to advertisers that they should be taking money out of TV and putting it into um, their own mediums. Uh, in, in that case, then you know they're they're looking to undermine TV, they're looking to attack TV, and it's our job uh, to defend uh, to, to defend. So I guess as a company, you'd say spirits fairly kind of agnostic on this issue because we've done TV stuff but we do quite a lot of stuff online as well. Yes, um, hi Pete. Hi, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, I feel an absolute virgin. <laughs> um, yeah, it's worth saying a few words about how Spirit look at this. We're absolutely agnostic. Um, my background's come through advertising, work for a big TV production company, worked in digital content and I guess at the end of the day, we, we agree there's a huge change in consumption, not only of television shows, but the wider audio-visual world. In the five or six years that Spirit's been going, one of the, our uh, projects we started off quite early on was working and helping the producers of Made in Chelsea, very teenage audience who are, I guess, very responsive to new technology, social media, um, some of them may not even be old enough to stay up late enough to really watch Made in Chelsea that's on at 10pm on a yeah. Monday night, on a school night. So when we first started working on it five or six years ago, um, predominantly, whether it was a measurement thing or whether it was a, uh, a, you know, how audiences viewed the content, most of the viewing was probably for the main premiere of the TV show on a Monday night. And as the years went on, um, with the growth of the uh, plus ones and the uh, on-demand platforms in the case of Channel 4 that was then called 4OD it got to a point where the premiere seemed to have a third of the audience the plus one a third of the audience and the on-demand a third of the audience and yeah. in many ways I always feel that the consumers are showing us the way and us as businesses trying to work in this space there's always a little bit of a lag before we adjust uh, what we do to what the audience needs. They're, they've got the technology, they they want everything whenever they want it, you know, certain demographics in particular, and it's our job to try and work out the best way to entertain them or sell commercial messages, so to speak. And so we know that's all going on, and I think sometimes 
in our little media bubble, bubble that we have uh, working in the industry, I don't meet anyone who says they watch telly anymore. They're all on, you know, uh, on-demand platforms. They watch their dramas on Netflix or iPlayer or whatever it is, and they they they're doing their sort of DIY by watching YouTube videos or whatever or yeah. following some vloggers. So we definitely know things are changing, and we've got clients who advertise on TV, advertise on these sort of new platforms. Uh, we also create editorial content for telly and these new platforms. And the, the hard thing is probably making sense of some of the data. You know, what we, why we followed, I think, what Thinkbox have been looking at is we genuinely want to make sense of it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. try and make the best content and get the best impact for our clients and the products we create. That's what brings us to the table, and mm. we're fascinated to get to Thinkbox's um, view of it. You know, we're a partner of YouTube and Google. Uh, we hear their perspective, and we see Facebook getting, you know, bigger and bigger and beginning to develop an advertising proposition, and Twitter and mm. uh, digital publishers, and it's it's hard for anyone to keep up with. Mm. Absolutely. As, um you mentioned Facebook briefly there. I've got some stats, so I did a bit of research. Um, Facebook has 8 billion video views per day. Snapchat has 6 billion views per day. And YouTube users upload more than 400 hours of video per day. That's huge numbers. It's classic what we call number wang. Okay. <laughs> which is basically the, the propensity for, uh, for these big global tech players to to bandy around very impressive um, sounding numbers that don't really have any real meaning or context in terms of how you, you know how you could use them, how you could um, uh, benefit from that knowledge to help with your sort of planning or uh, understanding of these platforms. So, you know, I think Facebook um, uh, stat has been 100 million hours of video uh, watched per day on on Facebook. And I think what was that? That was eight, uh, eight, eight billion video views. Per eight, day. Video, eight billion video views per day. So um, let's break that down a bit, okay? So I think Facebook has got around two billion subscribers globally. Yes. Um, so that would put it around four video views per person per day on on average. Mm. Um, then we got to define a view. Is that somebody watching a whole video? Is that somebody starting to watch um, a, a video? And how do we define starting to watch? Is it that we're scrolling for, through our mobile feeds and as we scroll through, a video starts to play and as it moves through our screen, um, yes. that's counting as a view. So if you've got, on average, in a news feed, um, uh, you know, four videos and you're reading your news feed, it could easily take one minute to generate those four views. So what, what we want to do is go, Let's look at um, all the data that we have across this sort of mishmash of different types of measurement and um, pull together something that's actually meaningful, that actually makes sense to, uh, the, you know, uh, to, to anyone. And that the best measure that we can use is time spent. How long do we spend with different forms of video? Um, and how does that differ between different types of demographics? And uh, that's the kind of analysis that we're sort of looking to pull together. Now, the problem with this is that it's quite difficult to do. It's a complicated piece of analysis. And so uh, we're pulling together different data sources 
um, and we can only really do it across quite large pieces of time. So we're looking at you know, 2015 as a whole. We can't look at day parts, we can't look at day of week, mm. um, but it can give us a global perspective and we can look at changing trends in terms of how much time uh, we're spending with different types of content so that planners and advertisers can, when they're, you know, they're figuring out their budgets, when they're determining where they should be um, spending the money in order to reach uh, their target audiences, they've got a good idea of where they're spending their time and where they're most likely to be seeing their advertising. I, I noticed um, an interesting stat that I think came out of Group M recently. When you look at Facebook in particular, I think it was Rob Norman, who's the, okay, yeah, the he's, chief yeah. digital officer there, talking about how Group M are beginning to look at what a, like a Facebook video view might be. I'm going to probably completely misquote him, but the <laughs> sense of it is, I think from what he said, that it must be a video that must be at least watched half the time with the sound on. Yeah. And I think that was his definition. You sort of go at one level, that's a perfectly sensible way of looking at it because he wants to provide value for his clients and for his buyers to have a sense of what, whether that's a commercial impact or however you call it, whatever the jargon is, uh, that is it. But I guess as we look at the market moving, uh, increasingly, if we're asked to create content or hybrid content, branded content, for Facebook, you naturally now begin uh, thinking about how the con- consumption of it goes. Mm. And I know 80 plus percent of those videos are watched with the sound off. Mm. So we create graphics to yep. do it, and you see a lot of that obviously at the moment. Subtitles. Subtitles, really, yes, in old speak. Yep. <laughs> yep. Mm. And you go, that can be as impactful possibly as having the audio on. You're sort of compensating for how people consume that con- content. So for Group M, who I know spend a third of the media in the world or whatever the huge yeah, figure yeah. is, to make a statement that says it's got to have the sound on seems a little old fashioned and a bit behind the curve. Do you have a, a view of, I know you're not Group M and you're not representing what they say, but when you look at that and I, they're trying to compare apples with apples, I mm. suspect, and I don't think you can in this world. And I know that's what you're arguing is making things so complicated. But do you have a view on on sound? I think sounds important, um, and um, uh, certainly, if I was to be given the option, then I'd rather have, uh, uh, you know, as an advertiser, I expect I'd rather have a, a view of my content with uh, with sound rather than without. Um, I, does it uh, does that necessarily mean it has to have sound in order to have an impact? No, I don't think so. I think you can still uh, you know create an impact without sound, but is it as powerful? I'd expect not. But I don't have any you know mm. evidence or research to 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 demonstrate that. Probably shows there's a hole in some yeah. terms of the research that we either Facebook or the advertising yeah. industry need to do on this. Um, so if you sort of take that back into the article, I think that. Uh, Lindsay wrote originally there was one stat I hope you can help me with this yes. is a I think this is a think box one um, which uh, do you know I, I went back uh, and asked the PR department at YouTube the same question so I'll yeah. declare that I've been investigating no, quite right, quite right. <laughs> and it was um, this one here which says that 0.6% of video advertising is seen on YouTube 94% is seen on TV and I go I don't really quite understand yeah. what that means, and 
maybe if you could help, then we could have a debate whether yeah. it's a good stat or a bad stat, or helping the argument or not helping the argument. Yeah. Okay. So um, this is really sort of taking the 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 video time analysis to to the next level. So when we we're looking at the amount of time that uh, the people spend watching different types of video within there, you've obviously got a lot of platforms work that don't carry advertising at all. So you've got subscription fod services like Netflix, Amazon Prime. You've got the BBC uh, doesn't carry advertising. Uh, you've got porn, which you probably which does carry advertising, but the majority of people don't want to advertise within, um, <laughs> apart from Diesel, I think. Um, and um, so we wanted to say, okay. Let's let's look at the amount of time spent um, that people spend watching AV advertising and how that breaks down for for the different platforms. Um, one of the sort of core reasons behind this um, was to provide a bit of context to a claim that YouTube had made. Uh, last year, which was that advertisers should be taking 24% of their mm -hmm. budgets for 16 to 34s and putting it, taking it out of TV and putting it into YouTube. And um, we want to say, okay, you know, how how realistic is that? It's difficult. You know, we can see that YouTube is accounting for about 10% of time in terms of 16 to 24s um, in how how much time they spend watching video. But what does it actually mean as an advertising opportunity? First of all, you know they, they provide some skippability um, if you so choose, uh, which is a very fair payment system. If you know people don't want to uh, watch it, they skip it, and the advertisers don't pay for it. Um, but that's going to impact on the uh, the exposure levels that advertisers can potentially generate through YouTube. Um, and then you've got the fact that YouTube is quite a long tail uh, of content. So there's probably only a certain amount of content that advertisers are particularly interested in uh, advertising next to, which again limits the options. So we want to say, okay, currently, current state of play, how much time uh, do the, does the average consumer, the average viewer spend watching advertising um, on, on YouTube and how that compared to, uh, to TV? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, advertisers want their, uh, want their commercials, want their spots, want their content to be to be seen uh, and you know ideally they don't want it just to be the start of it to be seen they want all of it to be seen so that that's the basically the background behind that uh, analysis so is the 0.6 and the 94 percent just to get into that actual figures just so i'm really clear yes what do those are you saying that of all of all video advertising 94 percent is seen on tv it's of the time spent watching advertising so if we, yeah, I think it says on the top corner the amount of time, I think it's like 18 and a half minutes per day for individuals. I think it goes down to 30 minutes per day for 16 to 24s. Um, so that, that gives the total amount of time that um, these age groups spend watching AV advertising per day. Yeah. And then the percentage figures break down and say how much of that time is live TV, how much of that is um, through watching TV on playback devices such as Sky Plus for you at normal speed, not fast forwarded. Uh, how much time is on other online, how much time is on YouTube. So it's a, it's a percentage breakdown, not a, a percentage of people yeah. ever doing it. It's a, a proper volumetric that's a fair like-for-like -like comparison. So at, at the end of the day, I guess, well, it's your, your business to do it, but I guess what you're saying is that TV's a better place still for video advertising than some of these other platforms. It's, it's not saying it's, it's, it's a better place. It's, uh, uh, there are a number of ways that you probably want to consider um, the, the platforms that you're advertising across in terms of your objectives, your target audiences, what you're trying to achieve. So number one is 
about getting your adverts seen and it's getting seen by, uh, in most cases, by as many, many people as possible within your target audience. It's about getting it seen an optimal number of times. Um, so what this is just, just providing a snapshot of is saying if you want your ad to be seen and in full mm -hmm. um, and with sound, then TV is uh, you know, by far the most common place where that, uh, that is happening. Uh, now, um, it's, it's not to say that just because YouTube is accounted for 0.6% of that, that um, that's you know, the, how much of your budget you should be putting in. It's just to give a bit of context to size. So you want to be planning your campaign in order to optimize your, uh, your reach and your <coughs> frequency against, against your targets. And really, it's, this, this research was um, trying to demonstrate the, the fact that the 24% claim from YouTube was a little bit punchy and uh, a step well, maybe you should look, too far. People should look at it from different angles, maybe, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, we did find it quite funny that um, Lindsay um, ranked uh, doing her nails. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who haven't read the article, there's a very funny uh, response from Lucy to uh, some YouTube research where uh, on her list of favourite things to do at work, one was her nails. I think she was sort of a bit bored. It's true. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a bit true. bored of these. I know uh, she, she really enjoyed getting her nails done. Um, <laughs> we did enjoy uh, and helps with the, the tone of the, the whole research. One thing I wanted to, uh, it's not really covered in this uh, uh, piece of work, but TV, all video based advertising, TV included, seems to be changing quite fast. If we look at YouTube, Possibly Facebook is growing, although they've got these huge video views. Yep. Mm. The, the concept of advertising rather than branded content um, is something they're experimenting with and other platforms are doing it. But increasing these platforms using programmatic mm. or self-serve type capabilities through, through the, their platforms. And uh, they can also heavily target mm. um, to data that's been connected, collected by Google or mm. Facebook or Apple or whoever's collecting that data through single sign-ons and your your interests. If you look at television, it seems still a bit more of a blunt instrument. Mm. Um, it's sold uh, as when I worked in uh, TV buying a long time ago. Mm nearly 30 years ago, <laughs> um, as a sort of direct sale of sorts. Um, but what I've begun seeing is this year in particular, or, uh, particularly around sports events, the Euros mm. we've got on at the moment, the Tour de France, um, a lot of the bigger broadcasters, Sky, Channel 4, ITV, are using technology to deliver different ads to different platforms across the live TV. So I guess my question to you is, is telly a blunt instrument and is programmatic possibly going to replace that direct sale? Can it ever do that direct sale? And can TV ever get to the point where the targeting that you get, possibly Facebook being brilliant at it, mm. uh, as we know, but other platforms um, have a lot of data that they can use. Can telly ever compete with that, or are they yep. still this big reach, yep. uh, a blunderbuss type, uh, excuse the phrase, but uh, concept to advertisers yep. and consumers? I think um, it's a really in interesting question. Um, uh, I think, first of all, we've got a, let's think about different kinds of marketing activity and if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Um, uh, different, uh, I guess, options that you want in order to achieve your goals. So let's start with talking about brand building. Um, and then after that, let's talk a little bit about activation and about uh, sort of response-led advertising where you're looking to sort of, you know, hit people who are in market and, and generate sales uh, almost immediately. Um, so from a brand building point of view, um, probably uh, while some, uh, some brands might you know, still be very interested in quite a tight target audience, the majority of brands are really looking to, to reach mass audiences and they're not looking to be incredibly precise over who they're speaking to. Um, it's the you know Ehrenberg, Bass, Byron Sharp, uh, the School of Thought. Mm-hmm. You have to speak to both the existing customers and potential new customers. If you look at the likes of um, you know uh, Audi, who make you know really great expensive cars, they want everyone to love their cars. They don't just want people who are going to buy an Audi to love a car because they want people who drive them to want everyone else to want their car. So there's there's the, the this idea of sort of wastage. When it comes to TV, is actually quite a, a quite a powerful marketing tool. Um, the other benefit of it is that you don't pay for it. So if you're buying 1634s, you're only paying for 1634s. Now it might be that your campaign is seen uh, by um, you know a huge number of 45, uh, so 35 plus. That's all free. That's all uh, you know on top of uh, your your campaign. So it's you know, it's an added benefit. Um, then, so that's the sort of the brand building side. I think that will always remain uh, the same, and that TV uh, will, uh, you know, as a, uh, as a, as you say, a, a blunt instrument. I think it's it's, not, it's still an incredibly effective uh, instrument for for creating brands and for driving brand fame. From the activation side of things, um, I think there's increasing opportunities to be more targeted and clever about um, how you're using your your TV airtime. A, because of how the TV market has changed. We no longer have 
um, you know, just five channels which are uh, generating huge audiences, and so you, your uh, your money uh, on a single spot disappears straight away. Mm. We've got an option of being you know quite tight with the t audiences you're targeting across the smaller digital channels, and so you can be uh, you can pinpoint uh, your customers uh, more easily. On top of that, you know, a lot of people call TV a, a traditional medium. Uh, and it really pisses us off because there's nothing traditional about TV. You've got a Sky who invested huge amounts of money uh, into creating addressable advertising opportunities through the likes of AdSmart. Um, Channel 4 who, through their video-on-demand platforms, have got programmatic solutions that are allowing advertisers to combine their own data sets with Channel 4's you know, incredibly rich uh, set of primary data they collect in. ITV are teaming up with the likes of Radium 1 to create um, simultaneous advertising that will go out on TV alongside people's devices when they're you know, multi-screening. So there's a huge number of advances in the way that TV is changing how advertisers can, uh, you know, can create direct response and uh, activations through, uh, through a variety of ways. So I, I'm, I'm very confident that it's a medium that's well prepared for, uh, for the future and to change with the ways in which you know, technology can, can help us be more effective with our communication. And if we look at other media outside of television, I think this year in particular, uh, some of the big newspaper groups have seen huge drop-offs in circulation, readership and advertising. Um, what is it uh, about television, do you think, that's meant that that hasn't yet happened? Uh, you know, TV viewing, whether it's gone yeah. up a bit, the same, down a bit, depends how yeah. you measure it yes. and we've been through the sort of plus ones and the catch-ups but it still seems in rude health yes in many ways uh, you can argue different demographics but people still watch television in abundance and the, the yeah. data is mm. is there and I'm waiting for the Ofcom report to yeah. tell me you know the big sage of all this in terms of how it's happening comes out in August so the question really is why is TV still so resilient um, to the changes that we saw initially in the music industry, now more recently in newspapers and magazines, you just somehow you go, is there a cliff this industry is going to fall off yeah. or can it weather this huge digital storm that's disrupted many other publishers yeah. who've obviously invested in their digital properties but the growth of digital doesn't seem to have been replaced at the same way the decline in their yep. traditional media. Yep. What is it about TV? Well, I think fundamentally it comes down to um, uh, behaviour, how people uh, behave. And it, uh, we did a really interesting piece of research around need states. Um, so a, lo a lot of the time we're presenting this kind of research that's talking about the percentage of viewing that remains live. So if we're talking about broadcaster content, um, it's, the, the majority is live, it's about 87% of all viewing is live. Then you've got, on top of that, time-shifted viewing, which is people who've been recording them, putting them on their planners, or watch them on the catch-up services. Um, so, uh, when we talk about this, everyone tends to be, oh, why is it, why are still people still watching live when you've got all these different ways in which you can watch content? Um, and um, it didn't, also it doesn't necessarily reflect people's own behaviours, especially those who work in media. Uh, people in media are you know, very different to normal people and um, uh, we've got some interesting research that sort of demonstrates some of these differences. Anyway, but from the, the need states research really was about um, uncovering the, the role that is played by uh, TV. And we did a study where we basically, um, uh, we, uh, we deprived people from watching live TV for, uh, for four days and we deprived them from being able to watch uh, video on demand for four days. 
And before the, before the study, they were much more worried about losing access to video on demand than they were live TV. But in reality, the, the, when they went without live TV, there were all these things that they missed about it that they didn't realise. And we identified that there were these six different need states uh, for, uh, for, for sort of content. You've got the likes of um, the need to escape. So this is where your, your high-end drama sort of sits, your Game of Thrones. Um, your, your homelands and it's that that's the type of content we tend to really remember and value and um, that's the sort of content we tend to talk about um, then there's event um, TV uh, so sports your big, uh, uh, Britain's Got Talent your X Factors etc then there's the need to connect um, where sort of news plays a role and it's this feeling of being sort of a part of um, you know a wider population and being in touch with the uh, the rest of the population and uh, so like news current affairs documentaries can can fill this need and social video also sort of works well in this in terms of the sharing capacity um, then you've got the things like sort of the need to share and spend time with your family, you've got the need to unwind, which is where you, you, know, you might get home from work and you don't want anything complicated, you just want something that you know can deliver. So it's why I think Comedy Central have been playing Friends at, from 7 to 8 o'clock for the last 10 years. Oh, it's and, and it's on the screen next to my desk and I got sick of that programme. <laughs> it, it must have been played, you know, 200, 250 times every single episode. Um, yeah, it, it keeps this so steady, well. steady audience yeah. of sort of half a million people, and it's it's this need just to watch something that I know that's easy and I can uh, relax with. Um, so, what we found was that just live TV could fulfil all these different need states. Whereas your subscription VOD, it was good for certain ones, like Escape, it was really good for. Um, and your when you were recording something, you tend to record things that were more for like me time, so any stuff that you really wanted to watch yourself that maybe other people in your family didn't want to watch. And um, but with live TV, it just could it could satisfy all the different need states, and I think that's why TV has continued to remain so strong, and why people still you know spending over three and a half hours a day on average watching TV, and it isn't that different to ten years ago. Yes, we've seen we've seen changes for young audiences, sixteen twenty fours, but we're not really able to capture the totality of their their viewing. So there's parts of the puzzle that are, are missing, and for young people, they've got. Um, sort of different needs and things that are related to their life stage, like um, control of the main TV set, not wanting to watch content with um, other members of their family. So they'd much rather go to the bedroom and be able to watch, um, I don't know, Love Island on, uh, on a tablet than on the TV with their mum. Uh, so it's interesting, if you start to explore the knee states that people have, you start to understand uh, their different behavioural patterns. And there's been a lot of talk. It's it's interesting actually uh, what you say about the 16 to 24s against other people at different life stages because there's a lot of talk in the industry about whether that behaviour that you have may yep. be sub 20, yep. maybe sub 18 or whatever the right way is where you might be in your bedroom watching Made in Chelsea with yep. our experience not even on your iPhone, because you haven't got a phone, you might be on an iPod, yep. or whatever the device is that's private to you as a young kid, yep. away from your parents, whether that behaviour stays as you go through, whether it might be through your first job, going to college, uh, being in a relationship, yep. having kids, or whatever. Is there any research that says one way or the other whether we adapt to the old type yeah. and you sit and watch Friends at seven o'clock because you're exhausted after making tea for the kids yeah. or actually because you've been brought up on Facebook or YouTube, uh, I'm no longer watching daytime telly yeah. like I used to and now I'm 
Yeah, um, I'm watching YouTube videos. Is there only any there's, there's data either way? There's nothing definitive because in order to have something definitive, you'd need to actually track you know, people over generations and look at how their behavior change. Um, we did do a piece of research which was focused around the 14 to 24 year old age group last year. And um, there was some really interesting stuff coming through that is basically suggesting that half and half, it's, it's, there's, there's uh, quite a bit that's related to their life stage and there's a bit that we see as being a cohort effect that will stay with them through different, uh, you know, as they grow older. So life stage effects will be uh, things around sort of time and space, so your environmental factors. That like not having control of the main TV set, not necessarily wanting to watch the main TV set with your friends and family. That will change when they get older, they have their own place. People do revert to the best possible screen um, in order to, to watch the content uh, and watch it in the way that they want to watch it. Um, then there's factors such as um, uh, young people they have less responsibility, they tend to have more free time, they don't have to do all the, uh, you know, the washing, they look after the kids, you know, hold a full-time job. And so they've got more, more time to kill. And uh, social media, uh, short-form video is incredibly good at filling sort of pockets of time uh, that they have. Um, as is, you know, TV is, is used in the same way, but more sort of a background to doing other things. So although if they've got a bit of homework to do or if they've got uh, some chores they need to do, then they'll probably have TV on in the background. Mm. So it's interesting to see the roles of video when it comes to just, just killing time. It was interesting to see that still though, like the main sort of golden hours um, were, uh, were down to TV viewing and for, as a sort of reward for finishing homework, they'd sit down and they'd relax and watch their, watch their favorite TV, longer form TV programs. Um, then one in really interesting thing was around vlogging and that the, vlogging f fills this specific need state that young people have that probably isn't being fully uh, or hasn't been capitalised on by broadcasters and that's the need to see people of a similar age um, in the content that they watch. So uh, as people are growing, growing up, it's, it's really sort of 14, 15, 16, they're still forming their identity, they're still they're figuring out what kind of person they are and that they need to have <coughs> see people in the content they're watching to help, just give them a bit of guidance, uh, sort of a, like a, a big brother or big sister type role model uh, who can help offer advice <laughs> on you know, the type of person they should be and areas of interest. Um, and I think you know, vlogging's really hit the sweet spot uh, when it comes to that. However, as they grow older, they get more firm, they get a better idea of who they are. And they don't need that so much, they don't need to have somebody that you know, they, they rely on for, for advice. So that's likely to change. Um, but um, then what's likely to continue though, and this is really interesting, we work with a, um, a psychologist from the University of Salford. And um, there's this idea called uh, basically neuroplasticity which is that the shape of our brains actually changes as we sort of develop, as we grow up, and it stops being as sort of uh, uh, as malleable once you get to a certain age. So once you get to around 21, your, your, your sort of structural brain is a bit more set. Um, so, so I'm afraid it's, it's game over for us guys. It's <laughs> <laughs> well, in my um, case, for quite some time. It's been a stupid brain for years. <laughs> but the, the, the theory is that you know this generation that has grown up with much more control uh, over what they watch, with um, the ability to use more than one screen at one time. This is actually you know being hardwired into into their brain. And so the next generation of sort of content makers. Uh, it's going to be really interesting they're going to be thinking about it in a completely different way uh, in a way that sort of the, the current generations can't so um, this sort of the, the need for control for choice um, to uh, to multitask uh, is being we hardwired and that will definitely continue as they grow older and move through different life stages so it's, it's a bit it's a bit of both but <coughs> 
Well, it's really interesting, and I guess time will tell in terms uh, of as yeah. we gather more data sets. If I could pick up uh, one point that you made, um, which was about vlogging, I think that's a really interesting yeah. point. If we go back to advertising in some ways rather than the future of uh, the television screen or whatever, mm. one of the things that we look at as a company is the importance in terms of advertising yeah. or selling stuff is peer-to-peer recommendations mm. and there's lots of jargon about what this is whether it's horizontal marketing or we call it peer-to-peer or mm-hmm. I guess it's that blogger believing Absolutely. that older brother or sister that you talked about so um, from a TV advertising point of view there seems to be a a, a sort of gap or a delay possibly in terms of understanding the importance of that because how do you incorporate that sort of advertising into traditional television mm. whilst these vloggers who I guess they're now been blogging four or five years with the sort of yeah. generally with the growth of YouTube in particular have grown from bedroom vloggers to being superstars in many ways yeah. for their demographic and brands are pumping quite a lot of money into them as branded content yes. really getting yeah. to their audience yeah. through them and their word word is better than the celebrity endorsement mm. or the big uh, glossy tv ads that might um, <coughs> mean something to a slightly older demographic mm. do you have you seen or do you have a view of how tv can cope with that I think you're talking about sort of different roles for different types of advertising. So I think uh, you know the, uh, being able to integrate your product into um, uh, you know gets a vlogger to buy into it. We, we we've looked into this, and there's definitely acceptability towards it from uh, from the viewer's point of view, as long as it sat well. So as long as it was a you know a good fit between the vlogger and the product. If as soon as it feels forced in any way, then they hate it. Um, so you find you finding the natural fits is very important, and once you get that right, then it can be powerful. Um, I think one of the limitations on it is the scalability, uh, because if they start doing it every week or in any uh, video, it, again, it loses its power. So um, I think it, it, it's really interesting in terms of like having this sort of um, uh, endorsement uh, side um, and this sort of advisory role, and it can often, like you said, peer to peer, this word of mouth type uh, advertising. But I think it probably works incredibly well alongside, you know, TV advertising because you're not really going to be able to generate your reach and your frequency with that, but you're going to be able to use it in conjunction with a with a wider campaign. And um, let's not forget that there's, you know, there's been a change in rules around product placement for content. So like you made made in Chelsea, um, I'm sure there's deals going on where um, that, that you know for makeup brands and for. Uh, that type of thing where you know they'll be able to get product placement within and but that will work alongside sponsorship of the shows and it will work along a 30 second spot where you can get a more explicit um, message uh, about the the, the product uh, across and it can drive the reach and it can drive the scale so I think it's about putting everything together and finding the best possible way to uh, uh, you know make your your overall um, creative idea overall message that you want to get across work across the different types of content. So in some ways, we're possibly saying that um, an advertiser now will tend to use a lot of different platforms for different things they're trying to achieve. Uh, They may even mix different types of 
advertising they might be within the content from product placement, branded content, sponsorship, advertising. So there's a sort of huge blamange of different options yeah. really in here. How does a media planner, a me media buyer even, and the client make sense of all of this? Is it possible? At the moment, not really from, from a measurement point of view. And the measurement is probably number one frustration that advertisers, planners have. Um, it's not possible at the moment to say, okay, I've run this campaign across TV, I've run it across YouTube, um, I've, uh, and what's the total reach for my campaign, what's the frequency? Um, and it's, it's a problem, and it's, um, it's a frustration, and I don't think there's a, a solution around, uh, around the corner. Um, there are a lot of agencies are developing their own sort of tools for creating estimates of this. And I think at the moment that's sort of the best, uh, the best guesses that, that we have are some, um, some, ba some basic tools which are looking at duplication levels between media usage across different platforms that give us an idea. But no, I think, uh, I think that's one of the big problems and it's one of the big problems that tends to be talked about quite a lot at you know, all the conferences. And yeah. um, I, I haven't, no one's got the solution as yet. But could you, you're a trade body really of the industry you represent. There are other trade bodies out there that represent all sorts of different parts of the advertising um, ecosystem. Do you have a, a recommendation to them or a thing that you think they or their platforms that they represent need to do to try and make this more cohesive, understandable, whatever the right word is? Well, I'm, you know, I'm a big believer in transparency. I'm a big believer in uh, you know the way the joint industry committees have always worked. It's about um, if you're a media owner, uh, then you shouldn't be the person that's measuring uh, the the value of or the, the viewership for your own products. It should be done by a, a committee that's separate to you. It should be ratified by ISBAR, who represents the advertisers. It should be ratified by the of the IPA, who represent the agencies, and they all agree in how it's being measured and that it's being measured in a fair way and that it's being measured in an open way. Um, so uh, yeah, I'd love it if everyone came together and came up with a, um, uh, if you know, Facebook and Google uh, agreed to be measured by someone like uh, Barb and they combined all the brilliance of their, their data with um, panel measures that help us understand who, what people are watching and uh, overlaps between TV audiences and um, online uh, audiences. But um, whether we'll see that, I don't know. Uh, but that would be my ideal world. That's what I'd personally like to see. I think that's the easiest podcast I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> Just start making it under it. That's sadly the end of this week's episode of The Mediaverse. Please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at MediaversePod. Subscribe, leave us good reviews. Uh, Matt Hill, thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Peter Cowley, thanks for coming on. Thank you, and my thanks to you as well. Thank you. That was really interesting. It was really good, actually, yeah. It was really good. Um, thank you very much for listening. Bye. Bye.